Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You're listening to part two of our discussion of Dear John. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you probably should go and do that first. We've already talked about most of the principal characters and we've started talking about a specific episode. We're halfway through it. In fact, if you carry on listening, we're going to jump straight back into that episode. So do go and catch up if you haven't already. And for everyone else, enjoy. But this part where, so we, we, we see he goes to his ex, his, well, his own former home and uh, picks up his son, Toby. And, and we have this encounter with Wendy. This is the first time we meet Wendy, right? It is. It's the first time we've seen her. We, he's spoken to her on the phone, but we don't hear her. But, you know, so we right. know she's there, you know. So this is a bit of a, a, a revelation of this character. But the, the, the thing that struck me initially is that both Wendy and Toby are utterly contemptuous of John. <laughs> like they've got... It's not that they dislike him. It's not that they are, they're, they're angry with him. They're, they've just got utter content for him. <laughs> because he's a pathetic man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you kind of think, oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's obviously learned long ago that she can just do whatever she walk wants. Walk all over him. She, walk all over him, exactly, yeah. And obviously the son is, is picking up on that as well. Yeah, but the, the, so the son walks around the zoo telling him how great Uncle Mike is. Yeah, and, he, and John, because John is good-hearted, you know, he does his best, and he he doesn't say it, yes, but Uncle Mike's an absolute whatever, <laughs> yeah. um, and so he just sort of stands and takes it and agrees with him and says all the right things. And again, it's just it's pathetic. It's it's utter pathos. <laughs> but it but it doesn't make us like him. It do, it doesn't make us that's feel true. sorry for that's, him. That's a really good point. Yeah, it doesn't make him particularly sympathetic. It's just pathetic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I. I and there are occasional moments where we'll kind of see some in a, in a moment where he sort of stands up for himself, but it so immediately falls back. Well, I noticed this in a couple of the episodes we watched that John does get angry, but often it's when he's on his own. Mm. Like when someone leaves the room, he gets furious and he, we see him repeatedly headbutting the wall. He does that a few times. But then as soon as the person comes back, he's all, you know, back into character. Oh, yeah. yes, whatever you need, whatever you want. But there's never a breaking point where he finally snaps and like kills everybody. Which is <laughs> that's what it that would be the good way to end the second series. But there, there is actually, you're bringing that up, there's quite a lot, not in this episode, but quite a lot in this series of John talking to himself. Yeah. Now, yeah, they do quite that. a bit of stuff where he's on the phone to someone and it's like a one-sided conversation and they use that for humour. But then there's a lot of stuff where he is just on his own talking to himself to the point where a couple of times he'll go, you're talking to yourself again, John. Yes, I know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he acknowledged it. And I think one of the main problems with that is I don't think it's very well done. <laughs> I don't think it's performed well enough. There is a real talent to talking to yourself. Soliloquizing. Well, if you're on stage and you're to be or not to be, I think you can get away with it a lot more. But on yeah. film, on TV, where you're supposed to ultimately believe that this character is just sat in their house on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that... Richard Wilson does really well in One Foot in the Grave. We talked about yes, that. Yes, he does, yeah. I know, like in Rising Damp, usually they get Vienna in so that Leonard Rossiter isn't talking to himself. He can talk to the cat. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a trick. But yeah, it's something that, I don't know, Ralph Bates just doesn't do that well. Maybe it's the writing. I don't know. It's It just never quite plays. And this is a good opportunity to talk about Ralph Bates' performance in general. Okay. 
I can't figure out what's going on. I, I can't figure out if I don't like do like it or I don't like it. I don't think he's a bad actor by any means. But I just there's something about this doesn't work. I, you know, I don't like the character, but we've talked about how pathetic he is. But you know, if that's what he was trying to do, he's done a good job of it, I suppose. <laughs> but it, it it doesn't strike me as very funny. I don't think he's a good comic actor. Like you say, his timing's you know, he's not got he hasn't got that turn of phrase, that timing. There's a real lack of charm, I think. And I mm. think that's in the character. I just think mm. it's a mistake. I think you can have you can be a pathetic kind of man if you if you're still charming, if you're still likable. Yeah. It, it's mm. whatever Ralph Bates is bringing to it. It's certainly not that. So so Ralph Bates himself. I mean, he is a, he was a straight actor. This is pretty much the comedy on his CV. You know, this is certainly in terms of a, a, a meaty lead role. See, I think of Ralph Bates as like Hammer House of Horror. Yeah, um, that sort of schlocky British horror type actor. There's a film that I saw him in. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, <laughs> yeah. which is, you know, you can, from the title, it's, a, it's an incredibly exploitative hammer horror. And obviously, I, I don't know when it came out, but I must have seen that at some point in my teenage years. And I've got to be honest with you, it made, made quite an impression on me. A very confusing time, <laughs> teenage years. <laughs> um, but actually, I think I saw that film after Dear John, even though it was made years before. Yeah. And just being incredibly confused that that Dear John was in this horror film. What the hell's going on? <laughs> but I suppose, actually, looking at his career, Dear John is the exception to the rule rather yeah, than this yeah, uh, this one-off horror film that I happen to see. Yeah, he did several Hammer horror films. And, mm. you know, obviously Hammer horror has a, a something of a reputation, but people do tend to forget that they're crap. And yeah. <laughs> even yeah, the good ones were crap. Genre exploitation films, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> even the ones that are supposedly, the, you know, the legacy ones aren't particularly good in terms of filmmaking, you know. I mean, it's not my yeah. taste anyway, so I'm a poor judge. But also, he he was the later end, you know. He was like, oh, Peter Cushing isn't doing anymore. Well, we need someone else. Like Ralph Bates, it turns out. And so he mm. was playing some solid lead roles in these films in the early 70s. I see in my, in my estimation that ha- Hammer is to horror as Carry On is to comedy. <laughs> you know, it's just a very British camp yeah. version of, of that. Well, interesting side note here. Uh, Hammer, obviously they did all the horror stuff, but they did other things. And one of the things they did in the early 70s was taking established properties and making films of them, such as sitcoms. They did the On okay. the Buses films. Yeah. Uh, and the On the Buses films made a lot of money. They, they did really well out of that. Mm. Yeah, Love Thy Neighbour, uh, Nearest and Dearest. There's, there was quite a few, I think, but... And Hammer produced them. It, and Hammer was the one who made them. And it, it was a, a time of British film. The reason these films were getting made was because, you know, there were certain things in place to help uh, incentivize British film, the, the British film industry. So there was financial incentives there to do it. And Hammer took advantage of that. But that's why we get quite a lot of sitcom adaptations back then, whereas, like, you don't in the 80s. And that was about the same time that Ralph Bates was doing his stuff in the early 70s with, with Hammer. After that, he went on to um, just a jobbing actor, really. He was a villain in Poldark uh, when they did a version of that in the 70s. Like yeah. he, was, he played a lot of French characters because he was half French. He spoke French. So okay. he ended up playing a lot of French. So he could, he could do the accent. Yeah. He's the great, great, great grandson of Louis Pasteur. That's interesting. That that is genuinely, that's the sort of thing that makes my eyes light. I love that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So his his mother was French. Um, But yeah, I mean, pretty standard story of him. He actually went to Yale drama school. He went to America. 
to go mm-hmm. to drama school uh, and then went into rep, you know, hammer horror, established himself as a jobbing actor. Uh, so Dear John was something of a uh, anomaly, yeah. But I, I think it's an interesting choice. And I think going for a, a straight actor for that role makes sense on paper because you want him to be the straight man in the in the comedy world. But I do, I do recall, I'm sure you can tell me more about this, but, but he died quite soon afterwards, didn't he? He died quite young. Yep. Uh, he died, well, he died in 1991, mm. which is actually four well, this years. Was, well, this was made 86, 87. Yeah, that's it. So the general consensus was they were going to do more, and they didn't because he died. But also, if, if you recall from our One Foot in the Grave episode, the first series of One Foot in the Grave, which was 1990, got rushed into production to fill the slot that they had booked for Dear John. So for whatever reason... That's why we're doing this, isn't it? When you mentioned that, when we did the One Foot in the Grave, that's where the seed was planted. I'd forgotten that. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) But so that suggests they were planning to film in 1990 and then it got taken off. But I also know that um, Ralph Bates died in 91, but he he, he died of pancreatic cancer, but he only got his diagnosis like 10, 9, 10 weeks before. It's a quick one, isn't it? It is. Yeah, he's got it. So, uh, but... He may have been ill before that, but that was by the time, you know. So right. I don't know if why that series got cancelled. But yeah, even if they were going to do it then, it would have been a three-year gap. That's, that's quite a hiatus. I'm not quite sure, but I think basically the idea was to do more. Uh, and they didn't. And yeah, he died. He was only 50 or 51 or something. So yeah, uh, not much post-game there on Ralph Bates. I have one other bit of sitcom trivia, though, for you uh, about Ralph Bates. His first wife... Uh, was Joanna van Geisigam. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that, Geisigam. Uh, but she is Linda in Duty Free. So she is Get like out. the other woman, <laughs> the one who's not funny yeah. in Duty Free. Yes. <laughs> the one that, the one that uh, hapless Keith Barron's having an affair with. That is correct, yes. But just on, on that note, I'll just give you another little divorce <laughs> trivia because that makes sense in this. So Mrs. Arnott uh, is played by Jean Chalice. Does that name ring any bells? John Chalice? John Chalice, who plays Boise in Only Fools and Horses. She was his first wife. Wow. Back in the 60s. Blimey. So they were long divorced by the time either of them worked with John Sullivan. So I don't know if uh, he recommended her. <laughs> like, I, like <laughs> I don't know what their relationship was like. But she did. A, she does appear in an episode of Only Fools and Horses after this, actually, later on. But here's another little sitcom connection for you. She appears in the episode of One Foot in the Grave that we focused on in our episode. Really? Yes. You know Ronnie and Mildred, who the annoying oh, people can yes. visit? She's Mildred. She's Mildred. She's on How screen for now? almost four seconds. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to say, now you've pointed it out, I still can't remember. But, no, no. but I'll well, take your word for it. So yeah, another jobbing actor, basically. Well, I'll tell you what then, before we get too far into the cast, we will come back and we'll talk about all the other actors. But let's just, let's return to our episode and yeah. finish off that before we, before we go through the cast. So we've, uh, we've been around the zoo with Toby. Yeah. Uh, and then he gets back to the house to to bring Toby home. And Uncle Mike's not there. He's at the rugby club with his mates getting drunk. Mm. When he's annoyed because her new man is neglecting her. Yeah. And so she decides to take it to, to exact her revenge by seducing John. Mm. Well, just a little little bit of trivia before I forget. Uh, the boy there who's playing his son is Ralph Bates's actual son. Oh, okay. Uh, so obviously they've got natural chemistry. It is quite a nice... Like, it doesn't feel like an actor child, I guess, but it feels like a nice that's natural true. performance. So that's nice. Uh, but yes, we, we don't see him uh, anymore in this episode after that. So yeah, this whole scene, the whole bit before has all been shot on location, on the doorstep at the zoo. So now we're back into a studio setup. So we're mm-hmm. in front of a studio audience. But one of my first notes here was, they're not getting any laughs. 
there's like there's punchlines, there's lines that are obviously supposed to be mm. jokes, maybe not big hitters, but it's a little joke, little thing here, and it's just not getting much in the way of polite titters even, and I'm not. <laughs> Maybe it was like take 25, because honestly, she's not doing it very well. <laughs> well, that's what I thought possibly, maybe, that, yeah, they're having some problems and haven't... I, I, I did think, I, I mean, you can perhaps tell me who played Wendy and what her background is, but she. I said earlier about how sometimes it felt really stagey. This yeah. was a really egregious example of that, where it felt like she was, I, I don't know, she was performing rather than acting, rather than just being the character. Well, maybe we did have some good times. I just don't remember them very well, that's all. All I remember is you spending every evening and every weekend marking the homework from your rotten school. Yeah, well, I was a teacher. I figured that one out for myself. <laughs> well, I know you had to bring the work home. I just wanted you to spend a little time with me. Yeah, she's... We do see her again in the second mm. series, but like not, not really much more than this. This is about as in-depth as it gets. The scene on paper should work. But there's just, yeah, like you said, just the, these lines that aren't hitting. I guess there's no chemistry between them, really, to say that they're supposed to That's, a good, that's and, a good way of putting and it. And that is quite a big thing in terms of this character, because we know he gets walked all over by her, but it's the ex-wife. We've seen in previous episodes that he like tries to get one up on her, but he never can. He's paying the mortgage, he's paying for her car, he's paying for her boyfriend's whiskey, and he's living in a crappy bedsit. Like, he should be angry. Yeah. And he is for very brief seconds. But what a great dynamic that, yeah, but, you know, for some reason they were together. They were in love. Perhaps there's mm-hmm. still some chemistry there. But you don't see it. There's no chemistry, is there? But we no. have to believe for this scene to work that there is. And we don't even get a kind of manipulative sense from her because it ultimately it turns out she's kind of using him to make Mike jealous. Yes. That's the punchline of the scene, I guess. But even that doesn't quite play, you know... He comes back in, but he doesn't come back in and go, oh, what's going on? What's with my missus here? What's like, he just comes mm. in and she's like, oh, oh, right, you can sort off now. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's just no drama to anything. There's no climax to anything. It's all so flat. Yeah, and again, so Wendy, Wendy leaves the room for some reason and, and so we're left with Ralph, Ralph Bates and Mike, the, the guy who's usurped his life. Mm. And... Mike's a bit of a dick, <laughs> but 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 again, John just John's just like oh yeah yeah, yeah we used to be mates you know. But yeah. that, that's another Everything thing. All right. the, the whole the gag is she ran off with my best mate, and mm-hmm. I think they wrote that at the beginning, and then you know when it actually came to this is obviously five episodes in where they go right we're going to see the wife we're going to see the the the, the boyfriend. Yeah. There's no commitment to it. Seeing those two characters, if I said oh those guys used to be best mates, they were at uni together, they came up like they played rugby together. There's no yeah, connection it's, it's between the same as it's the same as the the chemistry between John and Wendy. It's just not there, is it? Yeah. I mean, we used to be such good mates. When I came down to London, you were the one who took me under your wing, helped me settle in the big city. Invited me to dinner. How did you repay me? You started having an affair with my wife, you broke up my marriage, and then had me thrown out of my house. It still rankles with you, doesn't it? <laughs> and if the character was just some guy that she's shacked up with, that could work. There'd be some awkwardness there. They don't know each other. They don't know. I don't know how to feel. But the idea is that they're mates. And also, would you not have hired an actor to play that role? <laughs> Apparently, they didn't do that. <laughs> like in a series that has some pretty poor performances this is the worst 
And is that because they'd written somewhere earlier in an episode that he was Welsh and they realised they had nobody who could do a Welsh accent? Apparently, yeah, there's no one in Britain at the time who could do a Welsh accent, <laughs> including the band they hired. Oh, it is an awful performance, not just because of the accent, but it's just a weirdly wooden... Like, he's got nothing to offer. I've looked him up. He's got several credits. You know, he's not like a well-known... I couldn't place him. I thought he's a... Perhaps he's a real rugby player or something of the time, and they just brought him in as a kind of cameo. But they didn't even do that. But I think I think it's interesting what you say about like this is the only real time we explore that side of his life and that world. Are, are you right? There is there's potentially more there. But what what does that add to our to to the characterization of John? It's just made him even more pathetic, really. Mm. And and that frankly is not required. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think there's ever any thought as to what does this say about the character. It's just like, what will be funny in this situation? What, what's? I think your observation is really good that this is not really about his former life. The sitcom is about his current life and, and, and finding his way in the world. And so that's almost irrelevant. Not that we shouldn't ever talk about it, but we don't need to see it. Yeah. And there is a moment that I do like in this scene. So the wife, she's kind of going all flirty. She gets up and goes over to the settee. And John, in his kind of slightly nervous, I'm not sure how to play this way, we see, so we've got her on the settee, and then in the background, he's still sat at the table. And he gets up very determinedly, and then sits back down, and then gets up and like brings the drinks over in a kind of desperately rushed way. It's a really nice bit of physical comedy. And in a show that, frankly, doesn't go very physical much, it's quite subtle, it's really nice, I think it's something that's not on the page. I don't know if it's the actor that's decided to do that, whatever. Yeah. But it just works really nicely. It's just a beautiful comedy moment. Oh, well, that's, that's nice you found something. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the bit where she's like, oh, be rough with me. And he doesn't know how to do it. And it's like, <laughs> that works as a comedy bit. He kind of just thrashes around on the set for a bit. But, <laughs> you know, that I think that's fine. That works as a, yeah, like as a sitcom-y thing. I'll tell you what they did. Uh, there was what They were sort of arguing and then... She pours them both a whiskey and suddenly the mood mellows and they start laughing. I was like, bloody hell, you haven't even drunk it yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So should we, let's leave Wendy um, and Mike behind. So the next scene is we cut to the party, which is, uh, what's her name? Mrs. Boyd Peters party. Yes. And we've had it set up here that she's got some embarrassing problem. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's exactly what you think it's going to be. She farts. Farting is always funny. That's the well, it is always funny, but but when we have this big, big reveal of what will the problem be, I was like, is it just going to be that she farts? Because that seems a bit too obvious. Yeah, that's what it is. It's actually. a bit too much of a build-up for, for yeah, quite a Don't overplay your hand. Now, that, the, the joke here is that Mrs. Boyd Peters has very loud flatulence. And when she farts for the first time, John, because he's a gentleman... He stands up in front of everyone. He says, excuse me, I do beg your pardon. And so he sort of takes one for the team and relieves the pressure of the social embarrassment. Yeah. Everyone else is confused by this because they never experienced such good manners. <laughs> she does it a second time and Ralph taking his lead from John does the same thing. And of course, the punchline to the scene is Kirk having learned, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. She farts again and he steps forward and he says, that's all right, Mrs. Boyd Peters. You have that one on me. <laughs> now, that actually made yeah. me laugh. That, that was is... the only time Kirk made me laugh the I whole think, way through. I think it's the only time Kirk made me laugh, and I've seen every episode. <laughs> <laughs> I put that it in was my... a genuinely funny punchline. I, gen- I put that in my notes. 
this might be the best thing Kirk does in the whole series, I put in yeah. my notes. So yeah, obviously. Yeah. That was. And it's not just the line. He delivers it beautifully. He does this little hand wave thing. Timing. Yeah. There's yeah, some yeah, great yeah. comic timing there. We've talked about the lack of timing. That That is delivered really well, that line. Yeah, it is a nice bit. Interestingly, though, uh, speaking of Kirk there, in this episode, like he's just being an annoyance. He's got, we're walking around like flicking peanuts at people. For, even for him, it, it's slightly out of character. It's a bit much. When we see him with Sylvia and he's like dancing, he's got his hand on her bum and like he's just being a bit too uh, forward. That's Kirk. Yeah. But then just him being like an annoying child, it's, I know that's kind of what he does, but it's, it's too, there is a certain innocence to when he's annoying that he doesn't even realize it. But then again, that's not consistent. There's another thing. And especially if that character is an act, is, does that work? Yet another element that just doesn't quite Mm. fit with the characters. Should I take this opportunity to to speak of Peter Blake? He's, he plays Kirk. Well, yeah. Let's. I, I'd like to sort of go through all the actors. Have we have we sort of finished with the episode? I, I mean, we kind of we've sort of talked through that scene, really, haven't we? That's um... yeah. I mean, what, the one thing we we do get at the end there is that you know Sylvia kind of propositions John, basically asks him out, and he politely tries to weasel his way out of it. But then the the sort of the punchline of the episode really is him going, oh, people can be so terrible to each other without him realising as he rips up her phone number and throws it away and then he's suddenly confronted with it. Again, yeah. It's just not a, exactly a big button on the episode. Well, I, thought it? It was, I thought it was really, really tragic. Uh, yeah. you know, he's obviously still not over his ex-wife and it was, mm. just, it was just a really tragic moment. And unfortunately, poor old Sylvia is going to be upset by that. But, you know, there's nothing funny about that. Yeah, it's not funny. It was, I think that's it was the, a real yeah, moment of tragedy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, let's let's finish that episode, uh, right. anticlimax and all. So, yeah, let's. We talked a bit about Ralph Bates. So, yeah, tell me about Peter Blake, who plays Kirk. Scottish, actually, originally, and uh, trained at the, the Scottish Rada, I guess is what it is. But he was more of a musical guy. He did a lot of Western musicals. He did Jesus Christ Superstar and okay. that sort of thing. And he played Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Show for for a long. Like he he played it off and on for. 20 years you know it was a regular thing he went he went to right he had a regular role in agony which is the maureen lipman sitcom which was made sort of 1979 to 81 i think it was so he was a regular role in that as was peter denyer who plays ralph, plays ralph in this they were both regular characters but it seems like everything peter blake has played in terms of his better known stuff are like swaggering kind of elvis knockoff out of date John Travolta characters. Well, I suppose Frank and Furter is a, you know, the, the extreme version of that. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Uh, but like he, in the, so in the 70s, he was in a famous run of Pepsi adverts, which was sort of set in a 1950s style American diner with a kind of grease aesthetic. And he's basically looks like he looks in this show. Yeah. With the sideburns and the open shirt. And he's like, uh, and he's put, he's, He's singing a song about how great Pepsi is. Yeah. Uh, like, that was a big run of adverts, you know. So he was kind of in the public eye for that, I guess, as, as much as one is for an advert. But off the back of that, he did a, he released a single called Lip Smacking Rock and Roller, <laughs> which was basically the song from the Pepsi advert with less overt Pepsi references. Lip Smacking Rock and Roller. Yeah, because it was Lip Smacking Pepsi. That was the advert. Right? Mm-hmm. But sort of in character, I guess. Reached number 40 in 1977. And he he was on top of the pops. So even though it was a number 40, it was obviously kind of quirky enough that it was like, oh, this will make a good show, you know? So I said a minute ago that Kirk St. Moritz looked like he should have been in Shawaddy Waddy. (laughs) Yes. uh, I guess he was. (laughs) More or less. Yeah. 
uh, like he's done all sorts of just odd guest appearances in sitcoms. Just a fair bit of comedy. Uh, he's an episode of The High Life, which is a personal favourite mm-hmm. of mine, um, in which he plays an ageing rocker. Uh, you know, I guess he was probably yeah. pushing 50 by then, so at least he, you know, he was ageing. He seems to have finished his career in the panto scene. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. But you can yeah. see that. You can see him playing big, over-the-top characters. You can see him as a dame, actually, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, I can see that, yeah. But um, interestingly... Uh, he he was also in, I don't know if you remember this, in 2004, there was Mike Reed, as in uh, radio DJ Mike Reed. DJ Ra- DJ Mike Reed, not Pat. <laughs> yes, Mike Reed. exactly. Uh, he obviously fancied himself as a, as a musical writer. He wrote, he did like a Cliff Richard jukebox musical. Mm. He wrote a musical based on the life of Oscar Wilde. And it's mm-hmm. a, one of the famous flops. It, it, it I, I, one I've heard of that, yeah. So, yes, Peter Blake played Oscar Wilde in that. Oh, my God. So that that's was... a claim to fame. <laughs> that's his claim to fame. <laughs> See, that, that Mike Reed, UKIP Calypso. That's the sort of thing you could imagine Kirk St. Moritz doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yeah, so immediately after Dear John, in 1988, he was in a sitcom called Dog Food Dan and the Carmarthen Cowboy. Which might now, be the worst I remember title this. for <laughs> I've ever heard. I, not only do I... Right, okay, let me be clear. When I say I remember this, what I remember is the theme tune. We, yes. I, we're going to we're gonna have to drop the theme tune in because I'm going to sing it, but there's no way you, you go, you're going to edit this out. <laughs> Dog food, Dan, and the Carmarthen Cowboy. Oh, wow. That is impressive <laughs> that you... But that is literally all I know. All I can remember about the, the entire production is those two lines of the, that the, is, the song. That is an exact rendition because you can't have heard that for 32 years. That's pretty impressive. Now, that is lodged. That's lodged deep, that. <laughs> I've watched a couple of episodes just because it popped oh, up God, in my research. Deep. I thought, oh, that sounds like something that will be interesting to me <laughs> um, and wasn't it I, my, my recollection is that they were they were two lorry drivers from different parts of the country who, who knew each other because they would cross yep. paths and they were each having an affair with the other's that's wife that's correct yes that's it I've got the set up there that's it, it that's it that's how much more do you need Hello, Alan here, just dropping in, because since we recorded this episode, I've gone back to Dog Food Dan and the Carmarthen Cowboy. I've given it a full watch and I've given it a full review. And that review is on our YouTube page, British Sitcom History. Just search for that on YouTube, you should find it. Or search for Dog Food Dan and the Carmarthen Cowboy, you'll find the series on YouTube, and hopefully my video along with it. So that's part of my Forgotten Sitcoms series, in which I look at lesser-known sitcoms and generally try and work out why they're forgotten, because they're mostly crap. So check that out, and check out all the other stuff on the YouTube page there. Okay, uh, let's get back to looking at the career of Peter Blake. But he's, he's good in that, you know, in, in as much as it's a solid comedy sitcom performance. I think he's a solid comedy actor, and... Uh, but this this character just doesn't play. And I think part of the problem is that the character doesn't make any sense as a... No, I agree. As a character who's playing a character. And then when we see the real him, he's worse at playing the real him. That feels <laughs> like a worse performance. Yeah. Like yeah. that, the, the rock and roller, lip-smacking rock and roller character, he can obviously do that. Playing a geeky loser with living with his mum, he can't do it. <laughs> like, and I think that... That, that means that yeah. whole twist reveal just doesn't play at all. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, that's Peter Blake. He died in 2018. Oh, did he? Oh, okay. Yeah, he was 70 years old. It's not exactly... Oh, it's a long uh, time. Well, so how old was he? Okay, so he's probably older than I think. I did, Like I say, I looked up ages and he was younger than me. I'm 44, so he was, he was younger than me then. 
Yeah, I mean, he was born in 1948. He would have been Bloody 38. Bloody a long time ago, isn't it? Started, yeah. Hmm. Uh, we, we, we sort of briefly mentioned Belinda Lang earlier. Yeah, so Belinda Lang went on to do 2.4 Children, didn't she? And that was a, that was a big hit. That's probably what she's probably, yeah, going to be best remembered for. Yeah, she's another one pretty standard. Like, her parents were actors, so she, she kind of got into that. But Dear John is one of her first major roles. Mm. And she's, you know, 33 or something. So it's not, you know, she's been jobbing around for 10 or 15 so years. So I guess that I'm stereotyping here, but if her parents were actors, then what, she she's probably quite theatrical. She would have <laughs> played her trade that well, way. Well, yeah, yeah. More theatre work, I guess. Certainly... Yeah. In more recent years, focus on theatre. There's not a lot of TV stuff sort of in the last 20 years since 2.4 Children finished. Oh, that's interesting because that was a big hit. You know, I would have thought that potentially she could have gone on to do more, but I can't think of anything she's done since then. Well, they did that for nine years. I think she was just, mm. maybe she just like, oh, I'll get back to the stage or whatever. I, 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 like I say, I really like her. She, she, at the same time as she was doing 2.4 Children, there was another show called Second Thoughts, another sitcom in which she was in that, which she played much more of a character, you know, much more of a comedy character. Because I think right. in 2.4 Children, she plays like the sturdy mum, you know, like she yeah. is about as close to like the normal one, you know, uh, and, and, and same in this. What about the others then? So you mentioned uh, the actor who plays Ralph was with Peter Blake in, in Agony. Yeah. So, so what's his it, name? Peter Denyer. So he, as a younger actor, was best known because he was in the sitcom Please Sir. Okay. Playing one of the school kids. So Please Sir was set in a school and all the school kids were played by like 28-year-olds. Yeah. And Peter Denyer was one of them. And... It's remarkable how similar his character in that is to Ralph. Like, definitely more of a just a bit of an idiot, naive mm-hmm. fool rather than nerd. But in the same way that Ralph is naive, you know? Yeah. And very similar, sort of softly spoken, doesn't quite understand what everyone else is talking about kind of character. So there's a direct line between Police Sir and the casting agent for Dear John. <laughs> yeah, it feels they like it. seen Police Sir. But also in Agony, I can't remember exact details, but I think, you know, Maureen Lipman's character, she has these neighbours who are a gay couple, and he's one of the gay couple. Right. But it was quite brown, groundbreaking in 1979 because mm. they were a gay couple, but they weren't ridiculous camp characters. They're just a couple of guys who happen yeah. to be in their relationship. Both have beautiful moustaches, but other than, that, <laughs> other than that, they were quite stereotype-free. Pretty groundbreaking in 1979. To be fair, my dad had a luxurious moustache in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's a sexuality thing. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, uh, Peter Denyer was one of them. So, you know, a bit of sitcom history. Uh, but I don't know if I've seen anything that really makes me think great actor <laughs> in what sure. I've seen. Has he been in anything since, dear John? Nothing too significant. He stepped away from uh, being in front of the camera and he spent the latter part of his career writing pantomimes, but also I think okay. producing and directing them. But like, and I, when I say writing pantomimes, I don't mean like he was like the primo pantomime writer of the nineties and two thousands. Like that was. In, I'm trying in, not to be dismissive here. What, what, <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, don't they kind of write themselves? Well, someone's <laughs> got to get paid for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, I don't know exactly what that means. Just churning out the same old stories with some weak innuendo attached. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just yeah, just update the topical references. Yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. But he wrote, he churned them out, and he, that right. was he was well respected in the pantomime world. Uh, yes, uh, he died in 2009. Okay, uh, relatively young, you know, early 60s. Yeah, but you know that's his lineage of the pantomime world. 
Who's left? Louise. Who plays Who plays Louise? Yeah, so Louise was played by Rachel Bell. Again, this was kind of one of her first major roles. She did appear in an episode of Only Fools and Horses the year before. So I don't know if John Sullivan kind of liked what he saw or anything like that. She's one of those people who's just on guest appearances and things. She was in Darling Buds of May as a regular. She was in Grange Hill for a few years. She's currently in Doctors. Ah, okay. So she's working. That's one of those programmes that I've never seen, but... It, there's like 500 episodes isn't there? Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah. it's been it's gone for years and basically yeah, yeah. daytime yeah. soap so she's working she's doing all right and uh she's 70 years old now so you know that's, yeah, well, uh, that's okay. a good career but she the the one little interesting sitcom sort of trivia uh in in her career is that in 2010 she was in a stage adaptation of keeping up appearances playing hyacinth bouquet ah uh, yes i can see that you can that's see that can't you? casting yeah. makes sense yeah. doesn't it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's our, that's our main cast. Is there any other any other snippets of information about the the sort of recurring guest roles? Uh, one, uh, so obviously John has a friend called Ken who, who appears in a few episodes, mm-hmm. and his wife was played by Sue Holderness, uh, who plays Boise's wife, right? Who is Marlene in Marlene? Uh, thank you. Yes, yes, I saw. I watched that episode today, and um, yes, that was killing me. Thank you, Marlene. <laughs> yes, so she appears in a few episodes. So wife of a mate of the protagonist is her thing. <laughs> she is in a few episodes, like quite significantly though. <laughs> there is another um, character I'd like to talk about who appears in two episodes, the, the beginning of series two, uh, Rick Fortune. Ah, yes. Played by Kevin Lloyd. Well, played by Tosh Lines off of the Yeah, film. Tosh That's, off of the As film. soon as he appeared, it's Tosh in a denim jacket. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With sideburns instead of a side. Do you know, I'd love to know how long it's been since Tosh Lines was in the bill because I know the bill's not been on for 10 years, but in my head, he's still on there every night. I mean, he died in like 1998. <laughs> Did he? Oh, mate, break it to me gently. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, so in the, the first episode of series two, he's sort of, the new character who's come in mm-hmm. and we get introduced to him and the episode largely revolves around him. And then episode two also is a big deal on him where yeah. he, they, John gets him to perform and stuff like that. And again, just an example of weird choices of writing to, to bring in this new character, really make him a serious focus of two episodes. And then we never see him again. And he's gone. That's interesting. Cause I saw the second episode of those and yeah. it was obvious. It was apparent that this guy wasn't new. He'd already been introduced in yeah. the previous yeah. episode. And then he disappears. He drive, literally drives off into the mm. night at the end. And I thought, oh, well, uh, surely that can't be it. This is it's a new not character. even a really good conclusive ending, is it? No, because no, there's a no, sense that John he might drives, win him back. He drives he off into the night, but you don't. It's not clear that that's, you're never going to see him again. Yeah, and I think it's a shame for a few reasons. First of all, it just makes that seem really odd that he's there in such a big presence for so long. Secondly, I think he's a really good character and a nice presence. I think it's a nice performance. Mm. He's a good foil to Kirk in that episode as well. Yes. He sort of he sort of he sort of fights back against Kirk and throws it back a little bit. Whereas in the first season, Kirk's just basically saying whatever the hell he likes and everyone is just not reacting really. You know, they're mm. just accepting it and not telling him to get stuffed. Whereas yeah. uh where I'm going to call him Tosh. Tosh does, you know, he throws it back a little bit. The the, pro- the problem with that though that is that Kirk in those episodes becomes different to how he usually is. Mm. But again, it's never it doesn't feel deliberate or explored. It just feels like well, we need this character to do something different today. So I'm yeah, in that episode that. two, there was a nastiness to Kirk. Yes, that whereas normally he's just 
he's hurtful, but not really deliberately. Whereas when he was interacting with Tosh, mm. he was he was going out to hurt his feelings on purpose, and it and it felt different. Different. And I think him. if you bring that in as a regular character, you can explore that and do something with it. But they don't. I think ultimately the whole the point of it is that Kirk is this fantasist who makes up stupid stories. So when this guy comes in who's got some kind of genuine, quite exciting stories about life in the music industry, yeah. it's a threat. He's a bit more exciting than me and I'm making it all up. Yeah. Again, if you explore that, play with the character, knowing that Kirk is actually Eric Morris, a, a sad, pathetic loser man, then ugh, there's so much room for stuff there but it's like oh sorry we can't do any of that because we've got to deal with john doing some crap incidentally in that episode the the sort of stage show at the end we end with a guest appearance from freddie and the dreamers yeah and uh and you think oh freddie and the dreamers that's ancient history isn't it 20 years since freddie and the dreamers when that was made that'd be like that's that's more up to date than having blur or oasis on now <laughs> yes it is <laughs> Unbelievable. i'm so old <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're right yeah you just have Jarvis Cocker popping up in a cameo or something yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it would be the equivalent <laughs> yeah. interestingly they did an American version and they uh, so in the US version with Judd Hirsch they um, repeated several episodes like not exactly word for word but they took the John Sullivan well script. this is interesting because you sent me you sent me they were all on YouTube the American ones and you sent me a link to... I watched the first episode, which was yeah. shot for shot, almost a copy of the, the, the first episode of the British one. But mm. would I be right in assuming there are a lot more episodes in America as, as it tends there to are, be? There are, yeah. Well, just to quickly finish the little point I was going to make, um, in the American version, when they do that episode... It's Freddie and the Dreamers are the band that turn up. Uh, as, uh, <laughs> in New York? Yeah, uh, wherever it's set. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, Freddie and so, Dreamers had oh, a couple of American hits, so that's, okay, that's, that's close enough. Good for them. Good yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so, um, but now we're on the American version. I-, I watched the first episode that I sent to you. I also watched one just from later on, just to kind of get a feel of it. But yeah, they, they took, I think they adapted most of the British episodes quite straight. Um, mm. And then, you know, had other people write new ones. And the characters are all there, you know. We, we see them all and they bring in a, a couple of new characters later on. But ultimately, it was pretty faithful to what the the British one is. But what was interesting was that the Louise character, so she's this kind of haughty, upwardly mobile character in the British version. In the American version, they've characterised that by making her British. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs> she is basically the exact same character, yeah, but I don't know if it's ever explained why she's in America. But no, it's interesting that, obviously, as I say, I only watched that first episode and it, it just followed the same plot beats as the British one. Uh, did you go into how the characters develop within the American world? Um, I don't know if they develop much at all. Uh, <laughs> I know, like, the Kate equivalent ends up having a baby near the end or something like that. So she ends up in a relationship. Despite being frigid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, The one, the one major thing was that Kirk, yeah, there's no reveal that he is something else. You Mm. know, he just Mm. is that ridiculous character. So that's the one major thing. Although there is a running thing that he lies a lot. And then when they pull him up on it, he finds some kind of scheme to make it look more convincing or whatever. So he's still kind of a bullshitter, but not in quite the same way. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think Judd Hirsch is good casting for that, and he, and he, I think he's a bit more charming, perhaps, than Ralph Bates is. But I also don't think it, from what I little I saw, to be fair, you know, I didn't want to watch any more. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's the same script, so it's not like... But you didn't want to watch any more of the British ones. 
One one thing I did notice in that very first episode, obviously in Dear John, you know, he loses the house because he gives it to his wife, but he can't afford to pay rent on that. He can't afford to pay the mortgage and his own place. So he ends up in this dingy little bed sit, you know. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. The, the dingy little bed sit in America is massive, isn't it? Well, yeah, it, it starts with a character that I think is supposed to be his sister and the brother-in-law. They come in and they're like, oh God, this apartment's horrible. But just, yeah. let, let's make it say, right. say it's nice, say it's nice. The biggest apartment I've ever seen. <laughs> like, yeah. this, is, this is like, I've lived, everywhere I've ever lived has been worse than this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I... I, I Took that same note. <laughs> but I think Judd Hirsch definitely plays... It feels more like a comedy performance. Yeah. Uh, which perhaps, you know, Ralph Bates is not a comedy actor, but it feels like they're embracing that. And, like, he's the straight man, so that's okay. And like I say, I, just, I think that just doesn't work somehow. Yeah. So, dear John, I think, you know, let's try and summarise it. I, I, I mean, I don't think we liked it. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> um, my, you know, my memory of it was not... It's not like I had this beautiful, rosy memory of it, and I'm really disappointed. I don't, I don't remember it with all that much fondness, other than it was just part of my childhood. But, but I mean, bluntly, it's just not very good. It, you know, the the central character is not sympathetic; he's pathetic. The supporting characters are either too cartoonish or too unsympathetic, or both. It, it just feels like it doesn't really know what it's about. It doesn't seem to be making any point. Yeah. And it's not funny enough to get away with that. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I, it I, I've been struggling to put my finger on, like, what is it that's not working? And I think it's just aimless. It's it's not saying anything. It, it's not doing anything. And it's not funny enough to get away with it. Yeah. And, I, like, I've been trying to go, like, are the performances off? Well, yeah, they are. Mm. But how much is the writing off? Yeah, it's not strong writing. There's some moments that are nice but it's not consistent. It doesn't feel like anyone cares. There doesn't feel like a great deal of passion in this. I mean, total speculation here, but like, it feels like they'd lost interest. Like that initial premise was like, oh yeah, that's a good premise. And then it kind of didn't, didn't yeah. play out. Yeah. But because it's John Sullivan, by the time it hadn't played out, it'd already been commissioned. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, oh, well, whatever. It feels like a bit of a damp squib. And I, I, I can see why it hasn't, it hasn't stood the test of time. I think it's, you know, we are trying to talk about a variety of sitcoms here, not necessarily yeah. the best ones. We, we hope to cover the best ones as well. But regardless of whether Dear John was any good or not, I think it's important that we do talk about some of those perhaps lesser known ones in between the, the tent poles. And, and we'll continue yeah, yeah, to do yeah, that. Definitely. So if anyone, if any of our listeners have got any suggestions, preferably not just crap sitcoms, but, but perhaps <laughs> lesser known sitcoms that might be, um, that might have good memories for you, then uh, let us know and we can put them into our schedule thank you for listening if you'd like to share your thoughts on dear john the best way to do that is at our social media so twitter and instagram we are at britcom pod so find us there we're having some nice conversations about sitcoms over there get involved if you've enjoyed it then please do go back listen to some of our other episodes and if you really liked it then why not go and rate and review us on itunes and uh you know just generally shout about how great we are and, and help us get more listeners Thank you for listening. We will be back next week.